we are going to unite and level up. I will lead this great party into a new era. You are fake news. Hi guys and welcome to Politics Mad, a brand new podcast where we talk about all the week's politics except coronavirus. I'm Ollie. And I'm Raul and this week we've got a jam-packed episode. As you can imagine, most of our podcast this week will be discussing the issues of race both here in the UK and across the wider world. Yeah, we'll be talking a lot more about that later in the programme. But from a domestic perspective, we're going to start off with Brexit talks. And it's the news that the Bank of England has told its banks to prepare for no deal. Now, the governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, who replaced Mark Carney in March, has warned the banks that this could now be a possibility, seeing as current reports would suggest Brexit negotiations are not going too well. And understandably, some are worried they may have to trade on the less favoured World Trade Organization terms, sometimes called WTO. Now, um, certain businesses have been voicing concerns about no deal, with the BBC actually recently reporting that a Nissan executive said there was a danger to their plant in Sunderland without a trade deal. And the words they used were, not be sustainable. And that could uh, potentially cause some issues with unemployment. Yeah, the Nissan car plant in in the northeast has been. I, I remember during the um, Brexit discussions it, before it, the vote in twenty sixteen, it was always so centrally important because it's such a a big employer in the region and b it exports such a significant amount of its output to the wider world and of course Europe. So quite worrying signs from them. We've been hearing bits and bobs coming in from the Brexit trade talks ever since the start of the negotiations earlier this year. How much of this is just brinkmanship of the of the type we saw at the end of 2019 before the withdrawal of the political declaration was agreed? And how much of it is genuine worry that neither side is shifting and that we're heading towards a no-type deal-type situation? In the last two years, we know that businesses were constantly complaining about the lack of certainty in regard to the Brexit deal. And ever since uh, we technically left the European Union in January, the issue of trade talks has gone under the radar quite a bit. From a business perspective, I'm sure they'd love it if we had a much better trade deal, because as I said, WTO terms are not seen favorably by many. No, they're not. And this is all really reminding me of last year, really, because in terms of the key issues at play, neither side is really budging. On one side, you've got the European Union saying, look, if you want unfettered access to our market, you're going to have to play by our rulebook. And on the other side, the British saying, um, we're not going to play by your rulebook and we're not going to implement your laws, but we still want as free access as possible. And the two just are, are mutually exclusive. I mean, they're, they're, they're just they're two very stark beginning positions. And that's the same with fisheries. It's the same with uh, reciprocal rights for EU citizens and British citizens in the EU. There are a lot of sticking points, really, aren't there? And at, at the current stage in the negotiations, it's hard to see where the movement is going to come from. 
Yeah, that's true. But I guess on the other hand, a lot was the same thing was said last year about the negotiations for the Brexit deal itself. But um, they seem to agree to some changes at the last minute. And potentially that's what Boris Johnson will be hoping when it's looking like there will still be a conference in June next month with himself and the European Commission president. So if they can try and agree something, then it would be quite favourable to both sides. Yeah, and also from an economic perspective at the moment, we've got Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, potentially talking about a green industrial revolution for the country. You know, we heard a lot about that in the last uh, election in 2019 from both sides talking a little bit more about the environment than they have in the past. I mean, it was Labour that proposed their Green New Deal. Now, some newspapers are reporting that Rishi Sunak wants to use this prospect of a green industrial revolution to try and stimulate the economy um, out of the recession that we are heading into. Uh, the Financial Times reported this week that it would be a stimulus budget in the autumn, or the Times said he wanted this green industrial revolution by using green energy to create jobs and help grow us out of the recession. From the opposing side, Labour have also been putting a green economy at the heart of this recovery plan. Ed Miliband, for example, wants the government to employ unemployed young people to do the green jobs in technology and by doing things like uh, planting trees under what he's called a zero-carbon army. And this was him talking the other day. We need a zero-carbon army of younger people and older people doing the things that we know need doing to tackle the climate emergency. Whether it's planting trees with nature-based solutions to climate change, insulating homes, building zero-emission engines, or indeed repurposing our towns and cities so they lend themselves to walking and cycling. But that's really interesting because... It, it seems like the Tories are continually shifting their position. The Green New Deal, as kind of Ed Miliband um, alluded to in that little clip, is very much a Labour slash, if you're in the US, democratic ideal. It's very much an, an, an idea from the left rather than that from the right. Um, so the Tories are shifting their tune here slightly. Yeah, and... Um... I noticed in the last general election, one of the pledges all the parties seemed to make was when the country was going to be a net carbon neutral. Uh, the Conservatives pledged it was going to be in 2050. Labour pledged it would be um, before then. So it's, it's these questions around the green energy and green new deals stimulating the economy seems to be becoming far, far more popular now. And I think Germany have recently introduced a scheme where they intend to make green energy a big part of their recovery as well. Yes, and, and that, that clip is a good way of showing how there's definitely a shift in attitude. I mean, recently, Ed Miliband said that if the government's going to bail out um, Virgin Atlantic, the, the big international air carrier, they're going to have to be certain terms. Um, Virgin are going to have to commit to green deals. The British government might have to take an ownership stake in Virgin, uh, tackling climate change as we've known it before. This is directly taking control of companies to influence what they do in terms of environmental issues. It's quite a quite a radical step. Yeah, and it's certainly something which we could potentially be seeing more of. So whether or not the UK government decides to adopt these more from now on is definitely something we should be looking at in the next year or so. And indeed from autumn when they announce what this uh, stimulus budget might involve. Moving on now to really the, the central story from not just the UK, but obviously across the world and particularly in America, the Black Lives Matter protests, which in the UK have... Um, been held in many many cities across the country 
today as we speak there's one going on in london yesterday um one in london was held in parliament square which i attended and which proceeded down to victoria and then across to the american embassy before returning back to parliament square and whitehall it was quite a spectacle i mean it was the first thing i was struck by it was so unusual that, that to see a normal protest again it, it was there were so many people yeah, and uh, you did a couple of interviews while you were there, didn't you? So can you explain a bit more about what's in each of those? Yeah, so I decided to chat to a few of the protesters to see why they decided to come on that day. Um, here's a little clip from a auntie and a niece who decided to come down to support their sons and uh, cousins who are mixed race and to fight for their rights in the future. So then I moved to another young man um, who interestingly was holding a poster with a quote from Malcolm X. Here's what he had to say about why he was there. So yeah, definitely I saw a very diff differing range of people. Not much difference in terms of age, but definitely in terms of the ethnicity and background. And they came from varying different strands of the political spectrum. One thing kind of united them, and that was the kind of sentiment that enough is enough, that this has gone on for too long. It's not just a US problem. It's very evident in the UK. Um, often the chants were of those um, in the UK who, who the crowd saw as being part of this racial injustice. Mark Duggan came up a lot. Mark Duggan being the, the man who was shot in 2011, which sparked off the riots in in England, across English towns. And I just, I kind of got this feeling that this time it was a bit different in terms of the protests. They were much more widespread. And you've got to remember, this is in the context of a still quite stringent national lockdown. People are really angry. And for them to come out in circumstances like the ones which were pertaining now, something's got to change, you would think. Or There's certainly a lot of will for it to change. Yeah, and certainly on social media, there's been... I've never seen a campaign on social media this prevalent before. I mean, we've we've had the, so many of them in the past, but this time, every day I've been on social media in the last few days, it's been flooded with messages of support, um, activist statements, all surrounding the black community, uh, how people can educate themselves, how we can move the debate forward. Um, we've seen celebrities across the week like John Boyega and Anthony Joshua uh, using their platforms by joining the protesters. Uh, the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, tweeted his support. Um, Home Secretary Priti Patel and the Met Police Commissioner Cressida Dick did criticise the protests because of social distancing. But even today, they um, they are still protesting outside the US Embassy. And in cities across the UK, there are still protests going on. In fact, in Bristol today, in what was a hugely significant moment, a statue of the 17th century slave trader Edward Colston, which sits in the city centre, was torn down by protesters. Now, anyone who has lived in Bristol or knows the history of Bristol well knows that 
there's been a huge debate in the last few years over the statue of Edward Colson and whether or not it should be taken down because there are several places in Bristol, streets, buildings that are named after him. There are several other buildings that are named after people linked heavily with the slave trade because of Bristol's past. And there are always many debates in that city about whether those places should be renamed or statues like Colson should be taken down. So the fact that that's happened today in Bristol is hugely significant. Yeah, and similar kind of uh, campaigns have been launched in Glasgow to retake some of uh, the names that kind of uh, glorify the merchants who profiteered of slavery, similar sorts of things in London and across the US as well. Some of the things I've seen, particularly on social media, have been centred around systemic racism and also the issue of education in Britain. So there's been a lot of criticism of the British school curriculum with people saying it doesn't do enough to address black history, it doesn't do enough for us to confront our colonial past in this country and many people have been signing petitions to try and get that changed. Back in 2018 I interviewed the historian David Orlishogger just after a lecture he gave during Black History Month and he spoke a lot about issues regarding education and systematic racism in the UK. Now, I've never actually used this audio before, so I apologise for the quality, but I hope some of the messages he's talking about are clear enough so you can understand them. I think there's lots of ways in which we talk about elements of British history and we take out the imperial, the colonial, the racial elements. What I was talking about tonight is when I was a kid, I was brought up, talking about the Industrial Revolution. I was not taught that the cotton that was Britain's biggest export, the raw cotton came from America and it was produced by slaves. You can't talk about the Industrial Revolution without talking about American slavery. You can't really talk about the Victorian age without talking about the Chicago before Africa. And we do, we do it a lot. We talk about this, have these half conversations in which the bits that connect what we call mainstream history to what we call black history are disconnected. Yeah, that really gets to the heart of the issue because I think in the UK, a lot of people, certainly young people, are getting increasingly frustrated by what they see as a lack of education over the issue. Because, I mean, of my of the people I know, most people are quite impassioned about this topic. But then, say, as I'm a hang glider pilot, I often uh, socialise with a very different group of people, uh, mainly white, actually almost solely white, very middle-aged and often solely men. They seem to have very kind of little understanding of the issues which are motivating so many people to come out in the streets and feel so angry. And that's where all of this lies, really. I mean, David Lammy, the Labour MP for Tottenham, has been very vocal on this in the past and is being so now. The fact that we don't really teach our children and ourselves about the UK and its historical relation to race and oppression, with the UK being possibly one of the most relevant nations in which that discussion needs to be had, because of its colonial past and, and the past and legacy of empire. Yeah, and another thing we've seen in the protests, it's no longer enough to not be racist. You have to be anti-racist. And you also have to appreciate and recognise your white privilege if you're white. I'm just wondering, when you were on the protests the other day, what other issues did you see people specifically campaigning about? Again, it was it was quite a wide variety. There were some people who clearly came from a very socialist and left-leaning background who were saying look we've got to we've got to address the disparities in wealth and income amongst different racial groups there were groups focusing more on a criminal justice side saying that we've got to look at the police and the fact that although it's lesser here than in america people of black heritage are criminalized at higher rates 
in the UK. They're stopped at much, much higher rates than white people in the UK. Uh, they face poorer outcomes in the justice system for doing the same crimes than a white person would. There were also people focusing on a lack of diversity in key industries as well, um, saying that, again, that was an example of a racial bias within society. But the key thing is that they were all united on the fact that the lot of the black man or woman in this country is worse than the lot of the white man or woman in this country. And at least part of the reason because of that disparity is due to racial bias. That was the kind of uniting factor amongst all of the protesters. Yeah, and so that's been what's going on in the UK. Can you explain a bit now about how that's different in the US or indeed the same in the US and indeed the wider world? Yeah, so over the last seven days, we've seen the protests over the death of George Floyd continue and arguably get more widespread in the US. Now, it's it's, it's probably useful to round off on what's happened in the last seven days. Um, We've had tens of thousands of people come out onto the streets in the US. Um, Washington, D.C. has increasingly become a focal point for this as Donald Trump makes increasingly difficult remarks uh, to the protesters. Um, We've seen just this week the mayor of D.C., Muriel Browser, um, having or sanctioning Black Lives Matter to be painted on a street leading to the White House and changing its official name. At the same time, you've also seen other massive cities like New York, Chicago, LA and San Francisco being hit by massive, massive protests. Protests a few days ago actually closed off the Golden Gate Bridge for some time in San Francisco. That's a world famous site. Um, And this has been spurred on largely by a what the protesters see as police heavy handedness in controlling the protests and b remarks from the trump administration and trump himself which have fanned the flames of the protests by encouraging a strong law enforcement response and evoking george memory in uh, referencing u.s job numbers hopefully george is looking down right now and saying there's a great thing that's happening for our country there's a great day for him it's a great day for everybody you have to dominate the streets. You can't let what's happening happen. It's called dominate the streets. Yeah, so it's clear that one of the phrases used in there, it's a good day for George, would make a lot of people angry and upset. Can, so why then have they used it? Well, again, it, it kind of comes down to what we were discussing last week in that I feel that it's very much a political, a political decision at this point and echoes, has a lot of echoes of the 1968 election. As time goes on and as these protests continue, more and more things are making me feel like this is a rerunning of history. Um, the 2020 is going to be like the 68 election. Trump knows his base. Trump knows that his base are primarily white, they're primarily rural, and they're very, very socially conservative. They're not particularly predisposed to scenes of mass protest, especially given the fact that there's a pandemic on. And they're not particularly predisposed to the more radical element of the protests. By making these comments, he's A, shoring up his base by insisting that he is the person who will restore law and order. And B, painting out the protesters to be all of a radical stripe, 
a stripe that wants to destroy much of what makes America today and in the mind of Trump's voters makes America great today. And it's 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 going to be interesting whether he succeeds or not, whether his comments will significantly rile up his base and significantly rile up the protesters, which in turn, through their actions, if they get increasingly violent, will rile up his base. So it's a very, very delicate game and one which is a very, very high damage and high risk game he's playing, I think. Yeah, so that's the situation in the US right now. What's happening in other countries that we might necessarily not have heard as much about? Well, this is the interesting thing that marks it out from other killings of unarmed black men in the US, which has sparked peaceful protests and uh, riots there in the past. The fact that there is so much worldwide action. Um, Yesterday, we saw Australian cities, Melbourne, Brisbane and Sydney, um, coming out to protest over their own issues with uh, race and uh, colonial heritage, mainly over the rights of Aboriginal people in Australia and how they, there is a significant gap in living standards, attainment, educational achievements, jobs, etc., between Aboriginal people and white people. There have also been London, protests in London, as we've heard previously, also many other European capitals like Berlin, France, Madrid, Lisbon. The global nature of this is, is quite a striking feature, one which hasn't really pertained previously. Yeah, and can we go a bit more into these specific issues at play here? What are some of the protesters demanding? Well, it's a wide variety of things. I mean, on social media and on the streets, those in support of the movement have called for elected officials to address long-standing systemic racism and inequalities, from police brutality to mass incarceration to healthcare, And... I think a, a very poignant moment this week, um, kind of black America's frustrations with the way the system runs now in all of those areas that I've outlined and more, was summed up by Al Sharpton, the civil rights campaigner uh, for some time, who gave a rather passionate speech at a memorial for George Floyd. Let's see what he had to say. Ever since 401 years ago, The reason we could never be who we wanted and dreamed to be in is you kept your knee on our neck. What happened to Floyd happens every day in this country in education, in health services, and in every area of American life. It's time for us to stand up in George's name and say, get your knee off our necks. So have we seen any major changes so far? Because I saw the other day that the mayor of LA was announcing police budget cuts. And I know that defunding the police has been a request of some who would rather see money reinvested into community initiatives. So far, it's been a mixed bag. And this is what's very important to say when we're discussing policing in the US. Policing in the US is a very local matter. It's not something that the federal government can control that much. So no one general thing can be done across the whole of the US. More liberal police forces and more liberal areas like in LA have started to say, well, if this is how the police are going to act, we need to reduce the amount of money they can get. We can need to reduce the means by which they can operate. And that's certainly one of the things that's been suggested. And you're going to see a patchwork of different solutions for different departments in America. But going in on the causes of what protesters say motivates uh, and is the cause of racial injustice in America, 
we wouldn't have time on a podcast like this to go through all of them or even go through one of them in tremendous detail. But let's just briefly focus on one mass incarceration in the USA and how that works with a racial lens. Yeah, that's a really good topic to focus on because we know for a fact that the criminal justice system in America disproportionately incarcerates African-Americans. So can you tell us a bit more about that? The US system with incarceration is quite strange. Up until quite recently, it didn't criminalize people at a higher rate than most other countries. It was about 100 prisoners per 100,000 head of population, which was about average from rich countries. And after 1980, it's kind of drifted apart from other nations considerably. The United States now has the highest prison and jail population in the world. In 2016, that was 2.1 million, or just over 2.1 million, uh, and a rate of 655 people per 100,000, which is a lot more than the 100 per 100,000 that it was in 1980. There are around 10.3 million people in penal facilities across the world. This means that the US has over 20% of the world's prisons, even though the US represents about 4.4% of the world's population. That's an astonishing figure. That is an an astonishing figure. So how has that affected African-Americans? Very disproportionately. I mean, in 2014, African-Americans made up 34% of the total correctional population in the US. Now, as a whole in the population, they only make up 12%. So they're incarcerated at three times the rate of their actual occurrence in the population. I mean, there's certain issues where this really shows it quite clearly. On drugs, drugs is quite an interesting one because African-Americans and white people use drugs at fairly similar rates. But the imprisonment rate of African-Americans for drug charges is almost six times that of white people. And that's according to the National Association uh, for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP. African-Americans represent about 12.5% of illicit drug users. That's about their proportion in the total population. But 29% of those arrested for drugs offences and 33 of those incarcerated in state facilities for drug offences are African-Americans. So clearly there's there's, there's a massive disparity here between if you're a white person and use drugs and if you're a black person. Yeah, and that even leads into some issues regarding decriminalization of certain drugs, I suppose. And um, But even that would not deal with the root cause of the problem, which is clearly, uh, I mean, it can't be denied that this is uh, systemic racism. Exactly. And I found quite an interesting um, piece of audio recently It was Barack Obama speaking at the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP's conference. And that was in 2015 while he was president. Um, I pieced together a little bit of what he said there. And let's let's hear what he had to say now on that issue. By just about every measure, the life chances for black and Hispanic youth still lag far behind those of their white peers. The bottom line is that in too many places, black boys and black men, Latino boys and Latino men, experience being treated differently under the law. A growing body of research shows that people of color are more likely to be stopped, frisked, questioned, charged, detained. African Americans are more likely to be arrested. They are more likely to be sentenced to more time for the same crime. What I think is quite telling about that clip is that that was five years ago under a different president talking about 
the entirely same issues. Not Nothing has really changed in terms of uh, people's grievances with how black people are treated differently, in this one case, in the criminal justice system. Incarceration numbers have plateaued, but they haven't started to go down. And the percentage which black people are incarcerated in the US hasn't really budged that much, which leads me to the, the question, really, how do you address an issue as big as this in the US quickly? How does it get done? Because up until now, it hasn't gotten done. And you've got you've had people who are more predisposed to these arguments in power for quite that time. You know, Barack Obama was in power for eight years previous to Donald Trump. And he clearly, at, at the very least, acknowledged that these things were an issue, which leads me to think that it's it's somewhat unlikely that within the criminal justice sphere, these issues are going to be tackled. I suppose another issue here is that we've had this, these protests before. The ones we're having right now are clearly of a much, much larger scale than protests we've seen in the last few years. But what do these protesters need to do to ensure that this doesn't disappear with the next news cycle, to ensure that their message is maintained, and indeed to ensure that these protests can lead to change? I mean, do they need to organise in a specific way? Do they need to come up with specific demands? Organisation is key. If you are a member of Black Lives Matter and if you've been going to protest and if you care about issues like this, clearly the, the quickest way you're going to bring about change is obtaining some sort of political power for or political uh, willpower for your goals. And the biggest impediment to that, as it stands really, is clearly the level of politics at the national scale. Um, Donald Trump is a man who's not really predisposed to these arguments too much. Neither are the Republicans within Congress, whereas the Democrats are a lot more. So in terms of addressing these issues, in terms of pure politics, I would say that most people, if they are of this opinion, would surely have to focus on getting Democrats elected and getting a Democrat in the White House. Now, as we discussed last week, I think they're walking a tightrope in terms of how these protests are perceived because Nixon used a really good phrase and that this was the slogan in the 68 election. The silent majority will vote for me. And I think this is what most people fail to see when protests like this happen. They see a lot of anger and a lot of anguish and a lot of passion to change things. But the people, the very people who make that much noise seem bigger because of what they're doing. The majority of people, i.e. middle America, white working class America, the America of Idaho and Texas, the Carolinas, isn't predisposed these arguments. And although the majority of the protests have been peaceful, the ones that aren't and the, the looting we've seen on our screens will su serve to rile up the Republican base and make it harder for Democrats to win in 2020. Yeah, and I guess this is another reason why the 2020 election will be so important because of these huge issues we are seeing this year and how these protests come to influence it will, I'm sure, be a matter of conversation for many years to come. It will, yes. I mean, it's always given the phrase is always given that these elections are the most important in history. But <laughs> sorry to sound cliched, but yes, they are tremendously important. Trump's presidency has been so radical in many ways and so divisive in many ways 
the question now for these elections is, is that radical path going to continue or are we going to get a reversion to a much more similar American domestic and foreign policy that we've known in the form of Joe Biden or are we not? And it's not very far off. It's only five months off, almost to the day that it will be the election. And moving on to another form of protest now, we spoke a little bit last week about Hong Kong and the protests that have been going on there and how our government's been responding to it. So can you give a little update about what's been happening there and how the situation has or hasn't been changing? Yes, so a very notable event happened this week. Um, It was the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square uprising, uh, which every single year Hong Kong and, to a lesser extent, Macau commemorate. They're the only places under Chinese rule that are allowed to hold such memorials. Now, the Hong Kong government issued a banning order under the guise of the COVID restrictions. They said it would be irresponsible to have people out while the pandemic was operating. Now, a few days ago, obviously, protesters did come out. They defied that order and they came and lit their candles and they held their vigil. And do you think there's international pressure mounting on Hong Kong right now? Not really, no. I mean, the international news agenda has been very much switched on to the issue of race, particularly within the US, but also in other countries for this last week. Hong Kong's kind of sat on the back burner a little bit and hasn't really received much media attention. So if this continues, I mean, if the discourse on race continues in America and in across the world, across Western countries across the world, I think the Chinese government might start to move even more because they realise there's an opportunity here. While the world's eyes are preoccupied with something else, it's a good time to act when the world can't really see us. Do you think then that this could be the last vigil? It's possible. The law that's going ahead that sparked off these latest rounds of protests in Hong Kong has been basically a security type law which bans very vaguely all types of sedition and treason in the territory as the communist government sees it. Now, given the fact that this memorial every single year is commemorating a mass protest slash uprising in the centre of Chinese power in Beijing, you could imagine that it would be one of the things that would be targeted by the new law and would be effectively made redundant. It would be outlawed. So we could be very well witnessing the last vigil for the Tiananmen Square on Chinese soil.